Welcome to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free. Powered by the Century Foundation, I'm Rebecca Vallis. Every week, I go behind the music with visionary leaders and light workers working to reshape America's off kilter economy into one where everyone can thrive and access the shared abundance we all deserve. I think of it kind of like a weekly trip to the Marvel Universe, but the superheroes I get to talk with every week work with law and policy. And for this week, week's episode, I am so incredibly excited to sit back down with a dear, dear friend, one of my favorite people ever to talk with uh, for Off Kilter. That's Aisha Yandoro. She is the CEO of Springboard to Opportunity. She's also the architect of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. And she recently just did her first TED Talk for TEDx Women. Um, it was called, What Does Wealth Mean to You? She shared it with me. It's incredibly powerful. So I had to have her back on the podcast to dig into the topic of redefining wealth, why we need to do that and how we do that. Um, uh, I'm just going to put a little spoiler. Uh, her TED Talk is incredible. The link is in show notes. Please check it out. Please watch it. Please listen to it. There's a transcript too. Um, and if you have listened to this podcast for some time, you already know Aisha Nyandoro is amazing. So I am so excited to have you back on the show. Aisha, it's so good to see you. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's always good to be here with you. And thank you so much for being a dear friend. And thank you for sharing me once again with your community. Well, I I have to say, you really do need no introduction for people who listen to this podcast, because I think at this point, I've had you on, I'm trying to I'm trying to count. It might be four times. It might be five times. Um, I I mean, whatever it is. Three or four. Yeah. Whatever it is, you get the tote bag at this point. I mean, we... (laughs) Which we should probably do that, but uh, but yeah, no, for real, you you are one of my favorite people ever to get to talk with for this show. But for folks who are newer listeners, um, and we and we do, you know, we we do have some of those kind of on an ongoing basis. I'd love to just give you the chance to reintroduce yourself. Um, I mentioned you're the CEO of Springboard to Opportunity. I mentioned you're the architect of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. Um, that's the nation's first uh, modern day guaranteed minimum income program. Um, talk a little bit about that project and how it works, I feel like that's really the right place for us to start because that's a really big part of your own journey in how you came to understand and and really begin arguing that we need to redefine wealth. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So the Magnolia Mothers Trust is a guaranteed income program that we really started dreaming about in 2017. And we started dreaming about it because as an organization, Springboard Opportunities works directly with families that live in federally subsidized affordable housing, and we pride ourselves on being radically community-driven, meaning that every program, every service, every activity that we provide is one that the residents within those communities have indicated they need in order to be successful in life, school, and work. When 2017, we became concerned that we weren't moving the needle on property, and what that meant for us is that we were not seeing a successful transition out of the affordable housing communities that these families live in. And it's not as if that was our goal, but for so many of the families that we work with, that is their goal. They either want to live in market rate housing because they want the privacy or they want to move into home ownership. And so we realized that we weren't accomplishing that. So we went to families and we simply asked, what is it that we're missing? And everything that families indicated needed was more money. And so it really was how do you go about giving individuals that live in affordable housing, mainly Black mothers, cash without restrictions? And that's where the Magnolia Mothers Trust came from. So it's a guaranteed income program that provides $1,000 a month for 12 months, $12,000 total. We are, in essence, doubling the income of the women that we work with. 
We've been doing this work now since 2018. We are on our fifth cohort of women. Um, not only do we provide a guaranteed income for the moms, we also provide 529 accounts for their kids because we believe not only in investing in the moms now, but investing in the future of their kids. And I tell people all the time that cash is important and it's significant with the work that we do, but it is the least sexy part of what it is that we do within the Magnolia Mother's Trust. It's just one small piece of it. It's the changing the narrative on poverty. It's allowing these women to actually be able to show up in their full selves, their full abundance, the ability to show up and have their dreams actually be listened to and actualized. And the fact that we have really had a small part on the play and how we talk about cash and the need for better cash-based benefits within this country and the fact that all of that started right here in Jackson, Mississippi from an organization that is led by Black women working with other Black women has been um, an amazing testament to the power of community and the um, power of movement work. And for anyone who's not familiar with the Magnolia Mothers Trust, and I feel like guaranteed minimum income, um, universal basic income, there's a lot of those buzzwords that have gotten a lot more visibility and a lot more play in recent years. The child tax credit expansion, for example, yeah. that was just a sadly one-year experiment. It was allowed to end um, in the the earlier part of the pandemic because of pandemic legislation. Um, and, and that was a piece of legislation that actually cut child poverty in half. These These are things that have really raised the visibility of this idea, guaranteed minimum income. It, it's it's taken it from being a talking point, something we, you know, heard uh, Martin Luther King um, and mm -hmm. you know, even President Nixon arguing for, you know, decades ago, but really took that idea and said, hey, actually, this is something that, that we can we really can do, and this this really is something that we should do. Your project, um, uh, I feel like a lot of folks uh, increasingly have heard about it. For any, for anyone who hasn't and who is interested in the subject and wants to know more, um, we've had you on the podcast now several times talking in greater depth. So I'm going to put a few of those links in show notes so folks can go and check out the other episodes with you. Because what I'm really excited to get to do with you today is to actually really zoom out um, and to ask that bigger picture question that you were asking in your TED talk, which is what does wealth mean to you? Um, and as I mentioned, you're, I mean, really, you know, spoiler, a big part of that talk and a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. And the message that you're really getting out to the world is it's time for us to redefine wealth um, as a country. And that's really important for, for us to do um, if we're in the business of talking about economic justice, economic liberation. Um, and we want to do more than just tinker around the edges of the status quo. So, so I feel like the right place to kick off that conversation. And I'm excited to spend really the entire episode getting into this in depth with you. This is going to be fun. But I want to sort of ask, um, what was the story behind how you chose this as the theme and the lead for your talk? What does wealth mean to you? So actually, the thing for my talk really was I was thinking about, can we be brave enough to reimagine wealth? So that was really where I was coming at it from. But but even with the reimagining wealth and having those conversations, it really is something that I've been thinking about for the last year and a half, last two years. And it's directly connected to the work that I do each day with the Magnolia Mothers Trust and the work that I get to do with the women of Springboard as a whole. And so as we have been doing this work and as we see more women moving towards a place of income stability where they're not under the backdrop of financial scarcity, they were starting to talk about wealth. And I say that in my talk. 
And the way that they were talking about wealth was not the way that my colleagues and friends in the space of the economy or in economic justice talk about wealth. And it made me realize that we were missing. Um, our language wasn't connecting. And so since our language wasn't connecting, that we were excluding from the conversation the very population that we need to be including if we are talking about how do we go about resolving for wealth in this country and how do we go about making wealth accessible to everyone. And so it really was, okay, when thinking about the women that we work with, how do you define wealth? What is wealth to you? And how do we use that as the entry point to the conversation, recognizing that that definition of of wealth is valid, recognizing that that definition of wealth has merit. And instead of saying that, okay, oh, how you define wealth isn't actually wealth, we meet you where you are. And we say, okay, you know what? That is wealth. And that's a re- that's a reorientation for us rather than a reorientation for them. But so many times we don't do that. We are coming into the conversation with this capitalistic frame that, okay, wealth has to be six months worth of savings. Wealth has to be equity in your home. Wealth has to be X, Y, Z. Well, for a population that is just moving to from income instability and now saying that you have to have X, Y, Z in order to have wealth, it continues to exclude them and they continue to not feel as if they can actually be a part of the larger conversation that we actually should be centering in. And so that's really where it came from, just thinking through how do we actually use the wisdom of community and use the wisdom of these women to actually reorient our conversation into a conversation and actually, it's a conversation of equity. And it's a conversation that actually does get us to liberation more so than this narrow frame that we have been using. But, and and just to like really cut to the chase, right? And, and we're gonna get into all of this, but I mean, uh, like as you were speaking, part of what was coming through for me, Aisha, is that like money, right? If our definition of wealth is really just about how much money you have, um, money is not an end in and of itself, right? We're not saying that people should have it just to have money. It's because it's because of what it can buy you which is that freedom it is that agency it is that that liberation right um and so i mean one of the one of the things that i loved that really was early on in in your talk um when you were kind of laying the groundwork for why you were even um proposing this this radical redefinition of wealth is you you quote some of my very favorite words from bell hooks oh. um you you name i'm gonna get chills as i even say this um you quote Bell Hooks saying, definitions are a vital starting point to the imagination. What one cannot imagine cannot come into being. Point being, how we define things matters, but also how we define things constrains us, right? When it comes to the world that we might be able to imagine into being, um, you, you mentioned wealth is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Right. Yes, in in capitalistic spaces, but also even in in economic justice spaces, mm-hmm. some of which are are actually anti-capitalist overtly, but themselves get constrained in what they might imagine because of those traditional definitions of wealth. Um, and and part of what you really name up front is that we've allowed financial institutions to define wealth and the process by which we build it, um, and and that shows up even in our activism and advocacy and policy spaces like for example you named the racial wealth gap right where mm-hmm. we're saying let's dismantle the status quo but also we're still defining wealth in, mm-hmm. in a limited way. In our, yeah in our programs when we're saying okay let us move towards economic liberation but we still are talking about oh let's have budgeting classes let's do financial literacy so it's still sh- we are still using these tools 
that go against the very thing that we say that we're working towards, which is economic liberation. And so it really is how do we take our power and actually begin to work towards liberatory practices that actually are liberatory practices, not just renaming or repackaging the same tools that have not served as well and quite frankly have been towards our community's detriment. Well, and, and part of why I was so excited to have this conversation with you for this podcast is is honestly because so much of my own understanding, and this has been an evolution for me, right? Because I started as a legal aid lawyer, uh, zoomed out and started to do this work at the national level as a, a person at various think tanks doing policy and systems change work. But it's been an evolution for me. And, and it's, it's come to be that my own understanding of economic justice work has really become that it is about liberation, as, as mm-hmm. you're describing. And that's, you know, it's right in the opening of how I, I uh, introduce the show every every episode. Um, and your whole talk, I will say, is just full body chills, powerful, right? Everyone should Thank go watch you. it. It's only 12 minutes. Like everyone's got 12 minutes. Um, and, you know, I, I, I uh, one of our fabulous producers, Kings, was saying she falls asleep listening to TED Talks. Apparently your mom does the same thing. So everyone's got 12 minutes. Um, but this one line in particular just like actually tattooed itself on my brain as I was hearing it and then I had to go like hunt for the transcript so I could I could actually read the words um, and so I, I want to use this as as a jumping off point to hear you kind of get into this as we start to re envision what wealth could mean wealth you 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 say is about a sense of agency a sense of freedom the collective well being of the whole it is not an individual pathological pursuit talk a little bit about that incredibly powerful line and unpack that for for us. Yeah, no, I think it goes to what you were saying earlier about so many times we look at wealth as the consumer aspect of it. It is just capitalism. What can I buy for the betterment of myself? I, 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 I. But in the conversations that I have with the women and the research that I've done, the way that they define wealth, it is about the collective whole. It is what does this allow? What is this sense of freedom allow for me to do for others? How does this allow my agency be able to show up differently? How does it allow me the breathing room to be more imaginative? It is never a, well, if I have more money, what will I do for myself? Or what can I buy myself? It's okay, if I have more financial security, this will look like XYZ for my family. That will look like XYZ for my kids. It is a reframing that is beautiful and significant and it's one that if we, it's one that if we're willing to take the lesson from, can get society as a whole to a place where we actually are operating as a society and not just a collection of individuals taking taking up space in the same physical location with each other. I I, I love all of that, and and also you know just to like step back and acknowledge like this is a radical redefinition that you're arguing for. I it know. is actually a massive paradigm shift and it's it's beautiful, but also this is this is it's um it's a it's a stepping onto a, a very different um playing field when it comes to the imagination space that it it takes us to. I feel like um part of where I want to take us next is to um is to 
give you the chance to talk a little bit about um, some of what you've heard from the mothers in, in in the Mother's Magnolia Trust when you asked them the question, what wealth means to them. And, and that was some of what you did in prep yeah. for your talk, because you say some of how we do this, right? People might be like, oh, yeah, redefining wealth, that sounds great. But like, where do we start? How do we do something that sounds that big? You say, well, how we do this is by listening to others and listening to ourselves. You okay. started by listening to the mothers who are the the co-designers of this project with you. What did you hear from um, mothers in, in the Mother's Magnolia Trust when you asked what wealth means to them? Yeah, I've heard so many different things. And that's really where this reframing came from. Like I said, about a year, I've been thinking about this about a year and a half, two years. And it really was as it relates to what are the next steps the as it relates to our work. So we had done the hard work of getting people to income stability. And we had more and more colleagues and and myself as well were thinking about, okay, if you're now at income stability, let's begin to think about how you can go about building that wealth and that traditional definition of wealth. And as we were having conversations with our moms about, okay, well, what would that look like if we really help you to build wealth? Will that be? And we were coming at it initially with the traditional set up? Would that be, you know, helping you start a business? Would that be helping you, you know, helping you learn more about the stock market and opening um, investment accounts and all of those pieces? And all of that was projected, quite frankly, blatantly by the women that we work with. And it wasn't that it was rejected with the lack of understanding. It, it, they knew very well what those pieces were. It was a rejected in a sense of, no, that's not what I need. That's not how I define wealth. And so, it, and I remember the conversation uh, um, like right, like I can see where I was and everything. I remember it that vividly, the conversation when I was having with one of our moms where I first asked the question, well, how would you define wealth if what you're telling me is not making sense? And she said, okay, if something were to happen to me, my family wouldn't have to set up a GoFundMe account. They would have the money to bury me. It punched me in my gut and it took my breath away. And I was like, oh. And when I sat down and thought about it, I was like, you know, that actually does make a lot of sense. Because when you look at the data, we know that people of color, typically when they pass, they leave debt. And so being able to think about what that does to that family and having that responsibility to shift to your family, again, it was not about her. It was okay, making sure that my family wouldn't have that responsibility. And so it was a reframe that I needed. And I was like, okay, let me come at this conversation a way that I always come at this conversation, which is centering the wisdom of community and not coming in with my research economy, economist mindset. And so that's really where we started asking the question. And it was everything from the funerals. It was, I remember one mom saying, I want to have a two-car garage because I want to be able to come into my house and put my car in my garage and nobody knows that I'm at home. And so it was those very specific things um, that they talked about. They talked about the joy of being able to go on vacation annually with their kids and not some lavish vacation, talking about going down the road to the beach and those kinds of pieces. And so it really was the we hear you, we're affirming what it is that you're saying. And not only, I think it's important that it's we hear you, but then also how do we reframe that com- reframe the conversation for ourselves as well? Because it's one thing to hear someone because then it's like, okay, oh yes, poor you, that's how you're defining that. 
it's another thing when we then turn it inward and say, okay, actually, let me be brave enough to interrogate what I believe about wealth. Do I actually believe wealth to be all of these things that I'm working towards? Or have I just been caught up in a cycle of the status quo doing what it is I feel like I have to do for respectability politics? Or am I actually doing the thing that gives me joy and feeds my soul and actually aligns to my beliefs and my principles? Mm, I love I love all of that. And I, I appreciate so much you bringing um, the the voices of um, community into this conversation and grounding this there. You you know, some of the other things that you name in your talk, one one that really hit me was the privilege of privacy, mm-hmm. right? Like what a what a thing, right? For that as the definition of wealth, it's something we'd almost never hear about. We hear about stocks and bonds and we hear about retirement accounts and right. equity and right. all of those things that never, and I said this in my talk, I want, a mom has never said to me it's equity in her home. I have never heard it is having stocks and bonds. I have never heard a retirement account. Never. And I've asked that same question now to hundreds of moms. And that, that has never come up. And again, and I don't want people to think that I am some anti-capitalist. You know, let's be very clear. I gave my talk in a money green suit. I need people to be very clear. I, you know, I understand I am a cash advocate. I understand the role of cash in our day-to-day lives. But we can have a broader imagination than that. Uh, and we can understand that we can all come into this conversation about wealth in a way that actually centers our humanity, our needs, our life stories, our values, the backdrop of who we are, our culture, our desires, all of those pieces. We do not have to be pigeonholed into this very singular definition of wealth that was written very specifically for its very sub- small subset of our population, that if we're being honest, most of us will never attain. So why is that the gold standard? Well, and and you say you're you're a cash advocate, and, and quite literally you are, because you are out there literally fighting the, the good fight on saying, hey, everyone needs cash. Let's give people cash with no strings. And, you know, for folks listening and saying, yeah, well, I'd love to get to a place where we don't have money and I envision a society without money. Yeah, maybe we'll get there at some point, probably not within our lifetimes. But yeah. part of what I hear you arguing is that we can radically reimagine how right. we understand wealth in allowed in a way that allows us to, again, as we were saying before, connect money, not as just something to have to have it, but it's that the way that our society and our economy are set up right now, you need a certain amount of money to be able to achieve these ends. Right, whether it is the covering the burial expenses, so you have a dignified funeral without your your family having to be, um, you know, put on the street to to give you that dignity and death when you pass, uh, or whether it is privacy and achieving privacy, right? Or another you name is the ability to complete school, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. something like a lot of these things at this point in time, um, and certainly at the stage of late stage capitalism, right? I mean, these take money, right? And so it's not again money just to be Scrooge McDuck back stroking through a bunch of coins, right? Like it's money so that you can have the freedom and the agency, agency that's right. to do these things on your terms, right? Um, and that's and that's really what I, I hear you saying. Um, another that I really love, and I, I, I this is going to be a segue into talking about what wealth means to you, because I need to ask you that question. And that's mm. part of what you've been doing as well. But something that came through as something that many of your 
um, the mothers that you work with named was the thrill of being an extravagant auntie, right? Like being able to spoil your people, right? right? Yeah. And like, that's like, right? That, I mean, that might not rank on the list of like economic necessities, the way that people reduce, um, uh, uh, you know, these, these things in, in technical terms, but like, that's, that's a, that's a thing that matters, right? To it people. does. Yeah. It's important. And, and it matters, you know, it, what, what's important to you matters and we should see that and we should allow people that and we should not have these very narrow a connects to b connects to c um definitions and so yeah that extravagant auntie and ability to spoil your people is something that came up time and time again and i think that's so important because of the whole the scarcity you know space that so many families that we work with have been under and so just having that breathing room to be able to, again, be able to give to others in a way that you may not have had previously, it's a sign of wealth. And I think it's beautiful. It, it also, it makes me think of um, a conversation I had a few weeks ago with another guest, a friend of mine who's a legal aid lawyer in Philly, whose name is Jen Burdick. We um, have a far-ranging conversation about a bunch of things um, regarding our public benefits system. But one of the things that she talks about is um, rules um, within uh, a particular disability benefit program that actually prohibit parents from spending their own money on their kids in the way that they see fit. And she had a client and she tells this story about somebody who um, her she, she just wanted to buy her kid a birthday present. Mm-hmm. And like, the Social Security Administration is like, sorry, that doesn't fall in our rules. Within a category. Of, yeah. Right. It's not An it's allowable not a, expense. It's mm-hmm. not allowable expense. And she's like, my kid is having a birthday. I want my kid to be able to have a birthday gift. And it's like, sorry, no, we know better than you do. We're a government agency. You're a parent. We know better than you do, right? Which yeah, just ooh, that's right. hit again with the gut punch. Um, so Aisha, I wanna I wanna turn this around and 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 focus the light on you a little bit. We've been talking about your talk, we've been talking about um the mothers who are part of Magnolia Mothers Trust and some of what you've heard by listening to others, but you you name you know how we do this, how we do this work of radical reimagination is by listening to others, but also by listening to ourselves. And that's part of what you've been doing as well. And so you actually, as part of this TED Talk, you tell the story of your own journey when it comes to um, asking the question of what does wealth mean to you? Um, and, and you, spoiler, tell the story um, a in a way that actually really uh, starts about 20 years ago when yeah. you first walked into a wealth management advisor's office for the first time and you're all excited and you're like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm going to learn how to you know, get to wealth. Tell that story um, and then we'll cut to present day as that. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're giving away all the spoilers. People, y'all still have to listen to the talk, even though we're giving you all the spoilers in the talk. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, when I say this in my talk, I never thought about money growing up. It just, and I don't think it was taboo. It's just something we just didn't talk about. So maybe it was taboo. I'm not sure. We just did not talk about it in my family. So being exposed to what I felt was wealth, really, you know, the, um, the extravagant lifestyles of wealth, I did not have until I went to graduate school at Michigan State, where I was like, oh my gosh, these people have money, money. And it really was because of the various trips and conversations about trips and different things that my friends and colleagues were having. And it was a lifestyle that I didn't know anything about, but just hearing them talk about it made me feel like, okay, yes, I want in. 
And so when I finished graduate school, I got my first job um, and I was making, you know, what I what was good money at the time for a 26 year old. I was making $70,000 and I was like, oh, my God, yes, I'm rich. Let me go do what the rich people do. Let me go get a wealth advisor. Knew nothing about a wealth advisor. Oprah Winfrey was my first entry point in two 401ks and talking about wealth advisors. Y'all, that's really just how sheltered and naive I was into the world of um finances. So I went and met a wealth advisor and it just was not, it, at the time, I didn't realize what that significance, I didn't realize that that was a significant um, part of my origin story since we were talking about Marvel comics earlier. I did not realize that there was a significant part of my origin story and how I really do come into the conversation of wealth, but then also really how I come into the conversation about dignity and agency. Because how I was treated by that individual was one in which he did not see the full humanity of what I was or who I am. He saw a black woman with an African name with a little piece of money talking about wealth. And he put me in a box. Uh, And I felt that. And I didn't know at the time what it was that I was feeling or why. But it did reorient myself to how I talk about money, how I think about money, but also how I truly believe that all people have to be treated with dignity and that no one is a respecter of persons. And so that was my first entry point into really thinking about wealth and money and what it meant for myself. Um, Fast forward 20 years, I will say that the women that I work with in the Magnolia Mothers Trust have been the best teachers that I have and truly teaching me what wealth is and the importance of wealth, truly opening my eyes to what's important. So uh, I know you asked me about me and I'll get to me in a second, but I asked my maternal grandmother who was 87, what is wealth? And it was one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had. And this, y'all, this, this does not make the TED talk. So you should definitely listen to this part. Um, my maternal grandmother, my Paternal grandmother, my dad's mom, who was 87 years old, um, did not finish high school. And when I asked her what is wealth, she said, Well, this family and this legacy. And she talked about her 100 plus grandkids and great grandkids and great great grandkids hmm. and what it means for her to be able to sit in her lounge chair and watch us come in and out of her house on holidays. Um, and how she just feels so, so blessed that she gets to see that and that she gets to be here for that and how she just feels so, so blessed, even though she did not have an opportunity to finish school, that the importance of her talking about school and completing school to her kids and her kids talking about that to their kids, um, has led her to a family where she has all of these beautiful grandkids and great grandkids and all of these things that would never know the level of poverty that she knew growing up. And so it just was a beautiful way for to hear her really talk about it um, in a way that I think is attainable in the framing that so many people think about um, or so many people have but just haven't been able to give them stuff permission to actually think about wealth in that way. 
I, I love that. And um, it, I'm, I mean, again, I'm getting chills hearing you talk a little bit about the um, her definition and just like, again, like wealth being family. It's just it's just not even something that shows up in how we define wealth, right? It's No, it's um, not on any metrics. No, it's not in any metrics. It's not in any, you know, bulleted lists that think tanks publish or that banks publish or you know, that your wealth advisor is going to help you talk about that also, I mean, it makes me yeah, think about, you know, one of the things you, you name in the talk is that you said to that wealth advisor, that clueless person who didn't see you as a full human, um, you, you know, you had a couple of goals and one of your goals was to be able to retire comfortably at 60 and the other was to be able to provide for your mom. Um, and he was like, well, what, what, that doesn't make any sense. Why is that your responsibility? And you're right. like, um, okay. Right. Again, with like this really narrow box that it doesn't even have any space for family in it right yeah that's right yeah it didn't um and sadly 20 years later it still doesn't you know we still don't think about when we're talking about the wealth gap and we're talking about wealth we still don't talk about the role of caring for your family and what that looks like and the cost of that um and, and the importance of that and for me i was very clear then and i'm still very clear now that being that loving daughter and being able to define wealth in that way for myself is still at the top of uh, my definition of wealth and what I feel is important. And every decision that I make is made under the backdrop of how does this really help me be the daughter that I need to be to my mom? Yep. Yep. And and again, with that theme of care, right, being core as well. And you've you've mentioned that a few times um, as mm -hmm. we've been talking. But um, you know, which also connects to one of the other episodes I've I've done with you, which was about um, uh, uh, rethinking how we think about self care, right? And mm. Audre Lorde's famous words about self care being political warfare. But a lot of what you were talking about in that conversation, and I, I sort of feel like it's it's connecting here is. It's that ability to um, care for yourself sufficiently so that you can go out into the world and actually do the work of caring for That's others. Right. Um, and and again, that takes money, right? So it's not money for the sake of just having piles of money, um, but because it it is that it is that pathway to 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 care actually. That's right, exactly. And that in and of itself, like you said, it's a liberatory practice and recognizing that that is important and the ability to to provide that care yourself is so important for so many cultures. And so recognizing that as a starting point into the conversation as well is significant. So Aisha, I'll take the spotlight off you because I know you always hate to have it on you. <laughs> so I'll take it off of you and I'll and I'll kind of take us back to the Magnolia Mothers Trust and reconnect where this conversation to where we started, which is um, it, how how do you feel that the findings from the um, all the different cohorts you mentioned you're on your fifth cohort now um, of of this work? How do those findings? Um, teach us about what it will take to build a society where everyone has access to true wealth. Ooh. <laughs> well, and as I asked that question, I'll, I'll say there was a line that popped for me in your talk that I feel like really speaks to this. You, you, you actually you you say that um, it's not just that people in poverty need space to dream. You say the space to dream mixed with cash can yeah. lead to transformation that can lead to true wealth. What did, what do you mean by that? Unpack that really beautiful set of words. Yeah, I was trying to make sure that I did not want people to walk away from 
the talk and this importance of having the guaranteed income and the importance yeah. of having that being able to operate in a space where you are not under the backdrop of income stability, income instability. So I feel like that that first piece is important. You cannot be in a place where you're constantly in scarcity. Um where you can, you know, where you have the space to have the bandwidth for your imagination to come forward. So I was really trying to make sure that that detail was not missed. Um, and I actually say that to in a talk. I'm like, please, you know, if y'all walk out of here with it, I'm going to be really unhappy, which I was. So it's like, let's be very clear. People got to have money. <laughs> um, and so I was trying to make sure that people got at that, that you have to have income stability first and that income stability gives you the breathing room to reimagine what wealth looks like for yourself and that is where transformation comes from and that's what I've seen you know as we've seen more women move towards the space of scarcity if they begin to envision their life of what it looks like to not be under the constant threat of being evicted or something happening to their car and not being able to take care of it if they, as they have the breathing room, which is what happens when you have cash, you have breathing room to actually let your imagination come forward. That's what we're seeing that they began to have to think about and have conversations about and dream about wealth. And that's what we're seeing that their definition of wealth is radically, beautifully different than the traditional definition of wealth. I love that. I love that so much. So I know we've done a lot of spoilers here, but it's not to say that everyone has heard anything resembling what scratches the surface of this talk. This is your teaser. This was your preview. This was uh, the trailer. Um, go listen, go listen to the talk, go watch the talk. Again, it's the link is in, in show notes and it has a transcript too. If folks like to read instead of watching video, that's sometimes how I get my content too. But um, but one, one of the things I really wanted to make a little bit of space to talk about with you, Aisha, because it, it feels like it's very connected to this conversation. And it's quite honestly, something that's been coming up in a lot of the mm. circles that I move in is, um, is money and spirituality and, and wealth and, and spirituality. I'll make that connection in that way as well. Um, and I know I can go there with you because you're one of the people yeah. in life who I often have uh, overtly spiritual conversations with off the air. Um, we have different entry points maybe into, into faith and spirituality, but we always, we always end up in places that are really interesting. Um, and so, um, uh, I think I think I'm I'm pretty out of the broom closet at this point. A lot of folks know I'm I'm a when I'm not doing this kind of stuff. I'm I'm a practicing astrologer. That's one of the types of spiritual work that I do. And so there are some circles I move in with people who are um, energy healers, shamans, um, spiritual workers of, of one way or another. Um, and we were all having a conversation, or several of us um, women having a conversation um, the other day, talking about like how our feelings when it comes to accepting money for that type of work and it, um and actually a lot of a number of us have um, various mentors that we have needed to take some steps away from because they are very much in that capitalist model charging lots of money for what is really spiritual work or, or, or any energy or healing work and so that was really the kind of jumping off point to this conversation and um so i'm i'm actually interested in bringing that into into this conversation with you um in in part because at a at a really basic level um it, as speaking for myself, I understand money as energy. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's a it's a it's a symbol, it's a proxy, it's a crystallization of energy that enables us to exchange energy with each other as humans. Um, and humans haven't always had money, right? There are there were there were are, uh, lots of uh, uh, parts of our history before we had cash in the way we have it now, um, where people were relying on other forms of exchange, and there still are other forms of of um, uh, organizing that humans do of themselves in other types of societies that are around today. All though uh, uh, less frequently, where people are um, in relation to one another using barter um, and other types of um, uh, of ways of uh, exchanging things of value or labor or time r- rather than just you know pieces of paper mm-hmm. or uh, bank accounts and debit cards and, and whatnot. So you know, speaking for myself and bringing this around to spirituality, if you subscribe to unity consciousness, the idea mm-hmm. that we're all one, that we're all interconnected, whatever kind of languaging people want to choose for that, and if you think about money as the crystallization of energy, then you know it all comes from a divine source, right? It, it, you, want, you might be able to say it's all God's money, right? We're just the stewards of it, right? The same way we are with the earth and with natural resources. I'm curious your thoughts on how that connects to thinking about how we define wealth and, and why we need to re- redefine wealth. And I thought about it that way. If I actually have to process that, Rebecca. Um, yeah, I am stumped. Well, thank you for that. Well, one one line in your talk that I feel like made this made a lot of this come through for me. In case this gives you sort of a jumping off point, is you have a line where you say we are all degraded by normalizing immoral inequity, right? And so, it, obviously, like people are very quick to go to talking about inequality as a, a moral problem. But I feel like sometimes we jump over why that is, and we just sort of start with it like it's a, a truism. So I don't I don't yeah. know if. If that yeah, um, no, no, that's helpful. But what I was, um, what I was about to say, I do think. So I was coming. I'm coming at this differently than that mm-hmm. line. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that if we are coming at the definition of wealth from a spiritual standpoint, it is to recognize the recognition that we're all different and it is we're all different and those differences are what make us beautiful and those differences are also what make us who we are and it's the shared humanity that we have with each other that should make us value whatever someone's definition um, of wealth is and we should be able to find value in that because of the fact that, because of the shared humanity that we have, and that your definition is no better than my definition. Mm-hmm. They're just different because mm-hmm. I'm coming at it with my own experiences, my own values, my own ideas. Um, and so it is the same, seeing your humanity and allowing my humanity to meet you where you are mm-hmm. and choosing to allow you to have that definition which serves you well. And not saying that, oh, that's not right or that doesn't have value where you're thinking about this um, in a way that's just too simplified. So, yeah. I I love that. And, you know, I have to say uh, some other um, conversations you and I have had also were really, I think, echoing in my ears as I was hearing um, your, your, your Ted talk, but also as I was thinking 
talking about this conversation we were going to have today because another conversation you and I had for Off Kilter, and uh, I think it was maybe last year. I don't know what time is anymore. Time's a flat circle at this point for me. But we were talking about how your work is not your worth, right? right? And um, and we were, I think that conversation was with our mutual friend, Dorian Warren, who runs um, Community Change. And you have a line in your talk, another one that really hit me in the gut. You said, we are all made less wealthy by virtue of tolerating a country where anyone has to prove their worth. And I feel like that also really cuts to the spiritual undercurrent here, right? Because right. The, just the very premise that anyone has to prove their worth as opposed to each of us having inherent worth by virtue of being human, right, is what underlies the notion that you, you know, need a certain amount of money to have a certain level of value or that you need a certain type of job or a job at all to have any kind of value, right? So I don't know where that takes you. No, and that's, no, that's exactly right. And that's what I said. And so it's, you know, it's about the shared humanity and the way that we are currently defining wealth does not allow for the humanity to show up. It is a value added of stuff, and you are only valued uh, as far as your money will take you, which is as far as your stuff will take you. And that doesn't serve any of us well. It doesn't allow us to live in a society in which we're all thriving. We all have equity. We all have freedom. Um, it allows us to have what we have now, which is a whole lot of haves and a whole lot of have-nots. So, and and it takes us right back to those words of yours, right, about how we're degraded by normalizing immoral inequity, right? It really That's literally right. degrades our degrades our humanity. Um, well, go go listen to the talk, folks. Go watch the talk. And now, Aisha, I'm going to ask you a few questions about you um, yeah. that I'm curious to hear your answers to. I get I, you heard my Marvel setup, and so this is one of the ways I've been thinking about some of the conversations I've been having with folks. Is um, that you know we're everyone I have on this show, I believe, is some kind of a superhero. Um, and uh, it, it might be in the nerdy world of law or policy. It might be within activism and advocacy. But but um, if you accept my premise that you are a superhero and you are a humble one, but I believe that you are one, um, what what would you say are your superpowers? Ooh, um, I am a superhero, so I accept that. Thank you very much. So glad to hear that. <laughs> and my superpowers are I am a narrative shifter. I listen with my whole heart. And yeah, I listen with my whole heart. And I am able to weave myself in spaces that people may not expect me to be in and shift narratives that need to be shifted that are not serving us well with actual truth and not deception and lies. So Oh, I love and that. Awesome. As in, also, I'm a poverty disruptor. So, you know, I'm out here liberating financial capital. I just can't say capital anymore since those fools actually try to liberate the capital, but I also liberate <laughs> financial capital. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. To all of that. Also, I just, just to, just to validate what you're, I mean, all of that, all of that, but, but the part about listening with your whole heart, that is something that to be in your presence is it, like, that is something that it's impossible not to experience. You have a, you have a presence that is, um, it, it, it is, it is tangible. You can feel it. Um, and that's honestly, you and I have only been in space together once in one person, time, I know. which Folks is with- wild. 
wild, but like even on Zoom with you, right? Like yeah. it, it, it just that is that is you exude that, and um, you you hold space beautifully, and you really do. You listen with your whole heart. That's one of the reasons I um, can't stay away from you and want to have you on this podcast all the time. Um, uh, so I, I love that. Um, uh, next question: What is your personal mission statement, and how did you come to find it? Oh, yeah. My personal mission statement is I liberate financial capital for the advancement of Black women. And it found me. I did not find it. I was minding my business and it just smacked me upside my head and said, girl, this is what you're doing. And I said, okay, I accept. How do you how do you tell that story? Um, You've talked about this in various ways on the podcast, but just since we're here for folks who don't know you. How do I tell the story of the work that I do or how do of, I tell of how of how how the mission found you, how it smacked you in the head? Um yeah, the mission found it goes back to really me listening and being a servant of community. So I really do pride myself in being a servant leader and that my role in the space that I in the that I have. So I recognize the positional power that I have. And so my role with the positional power that I have is to truly make space for those that don't have the same amount of positional power. And so and being a listener of community and being an advocate within community over the last few years, I have realized is what's really needed is someone that can maneuver in spaces and shift narratives as they need to be shifted to actually talk about the hard conversations around cash um, and to disrupt the lies that we're telling ourselves about cash and poverty within this country. And so, yes, so it just, it's, it's not, I say it hit me, but it's not, it's just over time that it's become more and more evident that that's the space that I'm supposed to be working in and the space that I do work in. Um, I, I very much experienced you first and foremost as a, a narrative shifter. Um, you, I mean, you're also you're a visionary, you're an architect, oh, you're, you. you're many you're many other things. Um, but um, but that narrative shift piece, it um, I mean, and and I think of that as consciousness work, right? A lot a, yeah. a lot of the reason I I do this podcast is because it's about um, having people on who are the people who are very explicitly whether they use this languaging or not working to shift collective consciousness mm-hmm. in a way that will enable us to actually set ourselves all free right and none of us is free until all of us are free that's as right. we know um I, I do you think of your work as consciousness work i don't know that that's a question i've ever asked you in those terms i've never thought about my work as consciousness work i've always i think of my work which is in, i'm not the process that you give me two things to process today rebecca thank you um I think of my work as uh, community work. I think of my work as liberatory work. I think of my work as freedom work. Um, but I've never thought about it as consciousness work. So thank you for that. And I never think of myself as a visionary either. So thank you for that. Well, you, I mean, you, at least from where I said, I mean, by definition, you are a person who uses your imagination. Yeah, to vision something that doesn't exist yet. And then you are that person who carries that message of what yeah, could be. I know. I I get the technical definition. It fits. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. It's, uh, you know how I feel about titles. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll reframe you as a reluctant visionary. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All Which right. is horrible because that doesn't serve anybody else. That doesn't serve it doesn't. anybody either. It doesn't. You know, I, I know. 
I didn't want to accept it. Not reluctant, not humble, just visionary. Give it to there me. You go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I'll take that as a win today. You gave me you gave me a practice a long time ago. Um that that was something you shared. Um you, that, Oh yeah. Yep. At the, you know what I'm gonna say. At the end of yeah, the day, I do. you ask yourself the question, what did I change today and what changed what me? What changed me? That's I, right. Can't say I do it every day, but I do it a lot of days. And so I tonight I get to I get to go to bed and be like, all right, I I I helped I used to realize she's a visionary. No, that that practice is life changing because for me, some days the work just feels so big that it allows you to zoom out to get out of your head and actually recognize that you are taking small bites off of this big elephant and to celebrate the small wins, which sometimes in doing this work, all we have are the small wins. And the small wins are what lead up to the big wins right over time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So yes, that practice is, oh, oh, go ahead. Now I said that practice saved my life, changed my life, all the things. So yeah. I know I love it. I absolutely find it incredibly powerful. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. But the the small wins. I mean, that was also a, a conversation. I was. Uh, I feel like I've actually had on, on several recent episodes of this podcast with. Um, I mentioned Jen Burdick before, the legal aid lawyer. Also, Kathleen Romig, who is a um, a think tanker at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Both of them really spoke eloquently in in recent episodes about how small things or seemingly small things, like for example, revising a form. Right, can actually be huge, huge wins, relatively speaking. Right, we feel like they're small, but but actually, these are the things that can um, can lead to to big change because um, a form, right, that can be the entry point, for example, to someone's eligibility for cash, exactly right, right. for cash assistance, and whether they can understand the form, whether the form is full of a bunch of legalese, whether it's if the form pages. is one page or is it a one page form or a hundred page? I mean, so yeah, all of those things matter. So you're exactly right. Yeah, so those small mm. wins, not not so small. Um, so um, another important question for you um, is, uh, and this is a question I've been asking everybody this season, and it Kings Floyd, our fabulous producer, who you um, who I've already invoked once in this episode, and who you got to meet when we we right before we first started taping. Um, she's actually making a playlist of all of the songs. So um, your answer, just so you know the stakes, it's going to get uh, tabulated into a playlist. But what is your walk up song? What is your hype song? Um, Golden Jill Scott. Oh, okay. All right. There you go. (laughs) I love it. I'm realizing, you know, what we should have been doing this whole season. And I I love that I'm only just thinking about this now is we should have been like going out, like each episode should be ending. Oh, with with my, yes. They live in my life like it's golden. Yes. That is my, as the sun comes in, my back window. So yes, living my life like it's golden with Jill Scott. It's my walk on song. I love that. I love that so much. Um, all right. Well, you're giving me something to listen to this evening. Um, so beautiful. Um, and then, um, you know, we've got a we've got a few minutes left, but I, I want to give you the chance to talk about what's next for the Magnolia Mothers Trust. Anything exciting you have coming up in your work? Anything you want to plug? We've talked a lot about your TED Talk, which again, folks should go watch. It's in the show yeah. notes. But what else? What else is coming up? You know, we just launched our fifth cohort, which is really exciting. The fact that we're five years into this work that we started in 2018. So we launched the first cohort earlier this, and the fifth cohort earlier this month. So we're really excited about those pieces. And the other pieces that we're excited about as we go into 2024 is just continue to do the work that's necessary for policy wins. We've got to get policy wins at the federal level so that we can make 
cash, more permanent in the households that need it. So we're excited to be able to continue to do that work with partners. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's a it's a golden time. So, yeah, no complaints. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And and um and sort of follow-up related question, because I, I invoked before um uh the child tax credit expansion being one of the most exciting things that's happened within the world of guaranteed minimum income, really in US history, given that that was the first time yeah. we have guaranteed minimum income for all families with children in the US, um, with very few exceptions. Um uh and, and that was a one-year program because we had one party in Congress that thought it should just end and was perfectly comfortable plunging half of the nation's children right back into poverty, right? You know, um, I roll uh, side eye as I say that. Um, And it was still such a moment in saying, hey, we're actually as the US going to do this at scale, even for one year. What do you see as next for the guaranteed minimum income um, movement of which the Magnolia Mothers Trust is really a leader, as I mentioned, really the first modern program in the US to do this. And they're, they're now are are more than a hundred, I think. They're more um, than a hundred. Yeah, they're more than a gar- hundred guaranteed income program. So what I see with the movement is us to continue to have pilots and demonstration projects occurring, which we have to have until the federal government takes over the baton of making um, cash more permanent. So I see the demonstrations and pilot projects to continue to have a significant part in providing the data necessary to continue to build the case. But then also I see states beginning to play a bigger part as well in having conversations about what can happen at the state level to reform some of the policy. So perfect example, temporary assistance for needy families. How do we reform that at the state level? So where that actually is providing more cash in the pockets to families that actually need it. And so I see all of these working together, local, federal, state, in order to get us to what it is that we need, which is federal policy around guaranteed income. That's the long arc. But as we get to the long arc, keeping the momentum around the movement is where I'm excited about. And that springboard and Magnolia Mothers Trust will continue to be leaders and advocates towards and we'll we'll try to put a couple of links in show notes as well, um, uh, uh, highlighting some of the work that's been going on in the, in the country. I got to give a shout out again to um, our friend Dorian Warren and all the yeah. folks who are involved in the Economic Security Project, which has been supporting a lot of those pilots. Um, uh, and that, I mean, the evidence base is wildly rich at this point, right? That's that, exactly like, right. Giving people cash gasp, right? Actually reduces poverty, right? Actually helps people have what they need. And folks spend that cash on the things that they need to spend it on, their basic needs. But also, as we've been talking about, the stuff that they know is what's right for them to spend it on, whether that's um, you know, the, uh, the birthday present for the kid or whether that's um, you know, the rent or whether that's food or whether that's being able to cook a nice meal on Sunday, whatever the things are, right? That are the, the things right. that, that matter to that family. So um, uh, it shouldn't be a shocker that giving people cash makes them less poor. And yet we have to say it again and again. Over and over and over again. And and that's what we find from these these pilots. So we shouldn't need any more evidence at this point for policymakers to know that that is what works. 
works. But as you said, yeah. it is going to continue to be a slog um, and one that you're going to continue to lead the way on along with many others um, in communities across the country, but with uh, with Jackson, Mississippi really being at the epicenter with the Magnolia Mothers Trust. So Aisha, it is so fun always getting to be in conversation thank with you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your amazing work, for making time for this, for your beautiful TED Talk, which again, we have in show notes and folks should watch. Um, and um, I'm not asking you any questions about self-care, even though I've been asking that of every single guest that we have this season, because you were the kickoff uh, conversation um, for that whole series about self-care as political warfare. So in, in lieu of asking you any questions about that now, I'm just going to send folks to that episode. We're going to put that in show notes too. Um, and you, I mean, it, I really enjoyed that conversation with you as well. And I learned so much from you as I did from everybody as part of that series. Thank you. It's always so great to be in community and conversation with you. And I appreciate the opportunity always, friend. A lot of love for you. Aisha Nyandoro is the CEO of Springboard to Opportunity. She's also the architect and the founder of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. You can learn a lot more about the Magnolia Mothers Trust and Springboard um, in our show notes. Um, and uh, Aisha, big hugs to you. And I, I look forward to talking soon. Talk soon. Thank you, friend. And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio, with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals, and the phenomenal Kings Floyd, who keeps us all in line week to week. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off Kilter Enterprises, send us a love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. 